0: Still. And welcome to Brass Evolution, a show where we explore the rich culture and history of the brass banding world. This episode, I chatted David Reynolds about the lives and entrepreneurial spirit of two men from a pioneering railway town who went on to create some of the brass band movements, most powerful and enduring contest marchers, George Allen and Thomas Bulge. Before we get into this week's episode, I'm doing a shout-out to anyone interested in advertising or becoming a sponsor or affiliate to get in touch via social media or by emailing BrassEvolutionPodcast at gmail.com. I'm presently a one-woman show or band, so please let me know if this podcast can help you get your products or services out to a wider audience. Now for this week's episode. So welcome to the podcast, Dave. For those who don't know you, could you give us a little introduction to yourself?
1: Yeah, so my name's Dave Reynolds. I'm um, By day, I'm a business analyst for a a well-known telco company um, in in Britain. And by evening, I'm a little bit of a historian. So I'm a director of an organisation based in Shildon called the Shildon Heritage Alliance CIC. I'm also a local councillor there and the chair of Shildon Railway Institute, which uh, the gentlemen we're going to speak about today were both members of in their time.
0: How did you get started into this journey of discovery with these two men, George Allen and Thomas Bulch?
1: It's a good question. When I became a local councillor, I did a little bit of training in a town called Barnard Castle, which most people will know from its connection with uh, Dominic Cummings. And his
0: <laughs> oh no, anxiety. I'm having flashbacks! <laughs>
1: <laughs> and um, in the town hall there, where I was undertaking the training, they had a big board on the wall about all the illustrious people that came from Barnard Castle and I was thinking, where are all the famous people from Shildon? I I need to find something out about them and I went home and and talked to my partner about it and she was a brass musician. She still plays a little bit of trumpet now but she was a euphonium player originally in Shildon Town Band here uh, where we live. Then she played for Dunstan and East Yorkshire Brass so she said, well there's always George Allen. I said, George Allen? And she pointed out to me that there is a, a small stone in the market square in the town dedicated to him, which mentions a handful of his famous marches, Knight Templar, The Wizard, Senator. Uh, so she took me home and played me some of the, the pieces, recorded, obviously not didn't get the euf- euphonium out at that
0: point. <laughs> I you? mean, she could have. Um,
1: <laughs> well, she could have, yeah. And I was absolutely blown away. And I thought, why are we not talking about George Allen in Sheldon? So I started to to research things a little, and as well as coming across the music, which I thought was fantastic, I was introduced to Steve Robson, who had also researched George Allen a little bit uh, a few years previous, perhaps ten years previous, um, and had arranged some of his marches and republished them to to try and get people playing them again. Uh, He'd found a whole load of printed music from the old children band room that were hidden away in the attic, uh, unsold, pieces of music that George had published himself and had printed and uh, it just set me on a journey of discovery I I just needed to know about about this man and it was probably only about two or three weeks of research before I realized that actually we didn't have one we had two renowned brass composers from Shildon, and they both had very common origins they were born 15 months apart they learned together in the same junior band and their lives just span off in different directions. And I, I was just gripped from that minute. So it's it's taken me all over the place, just trying to get to the bottom of, of, of bringing out the story of these, these two extraordinary bandsmen.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the origin story of these two composers. For those who don't know where New Sheldon and Sheldon is and the kind of life that they were born into and the sort of what was going on in Shildon at the time.
1: Anybody who does know Shildon would probably tell you that it is best known as, as being what we call the cradle of the railways. It, it was the, the town from which the first uh, public steam hauled passenger railway set out in 1825. And as a result, it became the world's first first industrial railway town. So it went from from nothing really, just a little hamlet on the eastern edge of the South Durham Coalfield to this thriving industrial centre with a whole new industry that nobody really fully understood at the time. Um, So it it was growing and growing and like like a whirlpool, it was pulling people in from different backgrounds, farm workers, shopkeepers to support the the growing community and and they were coming from all over, from Scotland, from Yorkshire, from Lancashire, um, Tyneside and as a result they started out with kind of less of a community identity and I I think that it it was, um, there was a gentleman decided to start a brass band and I think it was all part of that community cohesion Francis Dinsdale, he was called, and he was the grandfather of of Tom Bulch, who's one of the subjects of of the book that I've created. So his father, um, Thomas Bulch Sr., was a bandsman. He married Francis Dinsdale's daughter. And, yeah, I mean, they, they started out with all good intentions. They got a band together in the 1840s, went off to Crystal Palace to compete in Enderby Jackson's big contests there. And these two young boys grew up in in very musical households. Um, Tom grew up playing piano, playing violin, playing cornet. Uh, George was a a chorister at All Saints Church in in Shildon. And they just, I I guess you could say they met each other through the, the banding movement and became blacksmiths together at the railway works. So it was an exciting town. It was an exciting and innovative place to be, but not very sanitary. There was no running water. Uh, it, was, it was dirty, smelly, noisy, and I, I think music just gave them something to escape from all of that, all of that. With it was a hard life, definitely a hard life. Yeah,
0: in the book, you, you really sort of vividly sort of describe the sort of conditions that these two men were living in. You know, you know, very close knit communities, multiple you know families living in all one room and very close together, and just sort of the the hard work and labour of the industries at the time. And like you say, music and musical output was organised by the industries to sort of give relief to the workmen, to bring the community together. And also, sort of a little side note as well, some of my own research, as I was reading your book and also researching myself, the Dinsdale name came through and I was like, I know that name from somewhere. So one of the founders of one of the Darlington bands, I think, is a brother of Francis Dindale. So the, again, another community link that it in that sort of area at the time, there was a lot of brass banding and also lots of links to industry, um, but definitely a hard life.
1: Yeah, I would say so. And, and It's interesting you should say that. I think there are kind of almost links between family genealogy and, and almost like a musical genealogy. And Francis Dinsdale passed his learning on to his sons, Tony and Edward. You know, uh, I think it was uh, Edward Dinsdale was the bandmaster for the, the juvenile band. Passed that learning on to uh, George and Thomas, they both became bandmasters. There are others in, in the book as well who go on in Australia to become bandmasters and it, it just gets passed down the generation. It's not like a genetic connection, but there's almost like a musical DNA. The teaching methods that those people would have been used would be reflected generation after generation with new influences being brought in. I find that fascinating.
0: Another thing I was also thinking about as well is the musical environment which the two men were brought up in was very much a sort of almost like a multi-instrumentalist and sort of self-taught as well. They didn't just play one instrument, they were choristers, they were in the amateur choir, things like this. And that seems to be a pattern that keeps coming up in my research as well. They played multiple instruments and band was just one of the outlets for their musical sort of expression.
1: Totally, totally. I mean, in the town uh, here where they were growing up, um, there were choral societies, there were operatic societies, there were orchestras. We mentioned Barnard Castle earlier on. Um, there are sort of cited examples of, of Tom Bulch um, playing in a, an orchestra at, uh, at Barnard Castle. And it's probably through that um, multi instrumental aspect to, to both, really, and particularly Tom Bulch, where I mean, in the book, we talk about the connection between Tom Bulch and Waltzing Matilda. Um, I think I've kind of proven that the the story of how Waltzing Matilda sounds starts off with um, Thou Bonnie Woods of Craigie Lee, which is a folk tune by Tannehill and Barr up in Scotland. Um, A Glaswegian violinist called Carl Volti arranged a lot of these traditional... It was actually called Archibald Milligan.
0: I love the name change. <laughs>
1: yeah, he would sell more music as Carl Bolte. And and obviously, you know, the, the, the music would have been sold to, to Tom Bulch because Tom Bulch then arranges that violin piece, a very simple violin piece, to be a brass band march when he's out in Australia. It's overheard by Christina Macpherson, who is a friend of um, Banjo-Patterson, who had the lyrics for Waltzing Matilda, and... Between them, they thought, what an incredible tune. So Tom Bulch is part of that chain, which is how Waltzing Matilda evolves to sound the way that it does today. You know, if you compare the March Craigie Lee and Waltzing Matilda side by side, the similarity is just, you know, it's incredible. We we had an Australian um, band over, I I was over just before the Whit Friday contests over at uh, Boreshurst it was. Mm -hmm. And I was explaining this to them and they went away just fascinated by the whole chain of events that that led up to Waltzing Matilda because of course it's it's almost an unofficial anthem there Uh,
0: absolutely and when when I read that I was like goodness me that's that's like a whole line of inquiry research musical sort of compositional research that you've gone down there but fascinating how we've gone from at the time as well, it kind of just shows you that the the arranging and compositional skills of the bandmasters and conductors at the time to take melodies that they've maybe learned by ear, perhaps, or even, you know, from other genres, and then yeah. create arrangements, bespoke arrangements sometimes, for their own bands, which might not have just been brass band. It could have been wind band, military band, you know, an array of instruments. So it's just fascinating, that link.
1: Yeah, and there was quite... Um... Quite an opportunity for I think that generation of, of young bandsmen coming through. In the prior to that, you know, a, a lot of the music the bands were playing were rearrangements of church music, you know, operas uh, that, that had been rearranged, and there was a lot of scope to get into composing music, you know, and and creating something that not only their band could play but that might be commercially viable. I think over time that became harder, and I think the they felt the difficulty of that themselves in their own lifetime. You know, for a while everybody was playing their music, and then, you know, as as happens with you know popular chart music today, suddenly your old hat and everyone's moved on. And George Allen, some of his stuff is has just proved eternal, hasn't it?
0: Exactly. I was going. I was just going to say. I mean, the fact that we're still playing these pieces today in modern contests and and every sort of possible performance opportunity shows the sort of the quality shining through and also that it's endured.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And bands love, love the music. They wouldn't play it unless they enjoyed playing it.
1: I think you're right. And I think that was one of the things that struck me about what I've done in, in creating a book, which is... So many people still enjoy listening to the Allen marches particularly and, and playing them, you know, in bands if, if they reach a, a standard where they can play the more complex contest marches. And yet so little was really known and understood about the man. And it, 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 I never intended to write a book, really. And the more I kind of got into the story and, and you know, what they each went through to achieve what they did, the, the more I was thinking, well, is it really only the famous composers that deserve... To have their story committed in a book, you know what's wrong with writing an engaging book about, you know, working class aspirational Victorian ordinary people. And that's that's really the the motivation for creating this.
0: I would say the the lives of you know the average working class person going on to do some of the most interesting entrepreneurial things is actually more interesting than some of the more famous composers and I was going to ask you as well we'll just touch on this a little bit but there was a bit of a sort of ideological but also a physical split between the two men they lived I think you said like they literally grew up two streets apart they were in the same town and then sort of the temperance movement came into being and also Thomas moved halfway across the world so
1: yeah I I think you're right I think as as young men up to that point, they seem very, very similar. You know, they both end up working at the railway engineering works in Shildon. They both end up in the, the blacksmith shop. George becomes a, a striker, who's the, the man with the big hammer who works with the master blacksmith. Um, so the, the master blacksmith does the delicate work. He's got the heavy work. To do. So Tom's on a slightly different path. You know, he's, he's heading towards master blacksmith. But he's got aspirations and dreams, whereas George looks at... Um, at music is something you know that he'll always love and always want to create. It's it's second to his profession and second to his young family that he, he starts to to bring up. Whereas for Tom, um, I mean, another thing that is worth mentioning before I move on to tom about george is i think um there's evidence that we found along the way that george enjoyed a tipple he enjoyed the company of people and and he would like to spend his his money when he eventually became a bandmaster on on refreshments as he, as he says <laughs> the in whereas tom um tom's a little bit more cautious he, you know he, he follows a more sort of pious uh, line signs the temperance pledge again In Shildon, there's evidence as to why he might have been this way. His his grandfather, uh, there's a lovely story of a picnic up at Brusselton Folly, which is long demolished, and the band, the Shildon Saxon band are drunk. And his grandfather is exasperated and throws down his sheet music in a in a fury because he just wants his band to play well. Tom will have seen this, you know, Tom will have grown up with his, his grandfather's frustrations and attitude. He signs the Temperance Pledge. He founds a new band, the New Shield and Temperance Band. So suddenly, George is part of the Saxon band and, and the old way of doing things. Tom is part of the New Shield and Temperance Band in a, a cleaner way. And it's not long at all before the second band start to exceed the achievements of, of the first. You know, they start winning prizes. He's creating music, and then he gets an opportunity. So three of his former bandmates have gone off to Australia and they write to him and say, it's wonderful here. There's a band right here waiting for you. We think you should move out here. So not only does Tom move out to Australia, he takes three of his bandmates with him, three more bandmates, um, a chap called Sam Lewins, uh, James Scarfe. The other one doesn't really stick with banding, so he doesn't feature a great deal in the story. And and it's such an occasion in in Shilden that in the newspaper they, they claim and and I, I stress the word claim, it could be journalistic license, but that two to three thousand people were at the station to see them off, and it's not a very big station. So it just gives you a sense of the regard that these, these young lads are held in, and, and he goes off to, to Australia to spend the rest of his life there. So you're right, you know, from here, George is back in Britain, Tom's out in Australia, and they just pulls apart.
0: When Thomas gets to Australia like you say, he's, they've got a band waiting for him. So tell me a little bit about sort of his compositional output then because this is the start of more, well, obviously the, the potential of Walter, Walter Matilda and some of his marches there, but also his compositions for the bands that he was training and working with there as well. Well, he, he starts out
1: with two bands. He starts out with the brass band in Creswick, in but also very quickly becomes involved in a military band in the city of Ballarat. And and gradually that draws him closer and closer to, to Ballarat. I think even when he arrives in Australia, he's really quite commercially savvy. So he gets into the habit of creating pieces of music named after places because people are going to relate to the title of the tune, you know, and bands from those places are going to want to play them. He also gets quite involved in... Uh, not so much folklore but major events in Australian history and starts naming pieces of music after major events and, and cultural things. He's, he's really trying to associate his music with the culture of Australia. So for example one of his, his early marches out there is a march called the Battle of Eureka which is a reference to a standoff between uh, the governor's forces in Australia and and the mining community that had happened about three decades before Tom arrives in Australia. But you can see that he's trying to create things that could become popular, you know, um, with audiences through the title, also with the bands and musicians.
0: touching on that as well, at the same time, George is also having a compositional output and his compositions and marches also have a little bit of a theme running through them as well in terms of the titles, <laughs> could you just expand on that a little bit?
1: They do, and it took
0: quite a while to
1: get to the bottom of this, and I'm still not sure how the inspiration comes about. But if you look at George's pieces through through his career, an awful lot of them are coincidentally also the names of ships. So Knight Templar, The Wizard, uh, there's a piece called uh, Ashbourne, I think, which, which was a, a ship that... Um, got involved in an incident off the northeast coast, he might have encountered some of these ships on visits to the northeast coast, which is where a lot of the the people from Shildon would have taken what sort of little holiday and, and leisure times they got. Or I wondered if it was possible that, as a member of the, the Institute, the, the Railway Institute in Shildon, which had quite an engineering focus, whether he would have perhaps seen some of the designs for some of these in in some of the the publications that were in the the library there. So I don't know, but there's definitely a nautical connection. And I think there are also a few titles like The Skipper, One from the Waves and and titles like that, that suggest he has a little bit of a a fascination with the sea. I think it's no coincidence that both George Allen and Tom Bulch and Tom's grandfather, Francis Dinsdale, were all members of the, the Railway Institute. Um, we know that among the publications that they subscribe to, for example, were the, the Musical Times. So we know that, you know, the institutes, not not just the one in children but right across the north, had as much of a, an artistic and cultural um, emphasis as they did a, a technical and an engineering emphasis. So, you know, there, there would be opportunities there to access publications that going back to those days, you probably wouldn't, of being able to afford to, to subscribe to at home. And this is, you know, before there were corner shops selling magazines and, you know, you being able to get things at home. Really, your access to newspapers and magazines would have been at a reading room like they had at the Institute.
0: Let's go back to Thomas. Things seem to be going pretty well for Thomas in Australia, but then he also kind of hit a very sort of patch of hardship, but also entrepreneurship. So can we just talk about his career
1: career? Just arriving in Australia is the beginning of a complete rollercoaster ride for him. And he never seems satisfied that he's doing enough. He is constantly adding to to his, his repertoire. So he starts out working at a foundry in Ballarat. And that might have been part of the arrangements for him going to Australia in the first place. But very quickly, when he becomes the bandmaster of the military band, he starts to take music. Professionally. And not only that, perhaps through his a connection with his wife, his, his wife's father was quite wealthy. He was a manager at a gold mine, and you know, I'm not saying that's why they got together, but I have a feeling that he backed his son-in-law, son-in-law a little bit. You know, in, invested in the couple's future, and they opened a music shop. So they were importing pianos, organs, brass instruments. Um, and the music shop, of course, became the perfect channel for him to sell the music that he was writing. So that led him into you know, the, the possibility of, of publishing his music. So initially, I, I think the music he was creating for the Australian bands was all handwritten scores. But eventually, you know, he was sending pieces back to his publisher in, in Britain, who was uh, a, a chap called Thomas Hare based in in Hull, who coincidentally was George Allen's first publisher as well. And, yeah, it it, it sort of evolved from there. But in terms of the the hardship, it didn't always go smoothly. So he would add bands to his repertoires, take on more and more bands. Sometimes that would lead to discontentment with the band that he had, which would lead to him losing the the bandmaster's position there. His shop burned down, which was... And a real setback, all the stock went, all of his printed sheet music that he had to pay for was gone. Uh, he went bankrupt, um, moved to Melbourne to make a new start in Melbourne. But before that happened, it, there were family tragedies as well he He lost his firstborn child, he and his wife. One of the saddest things about the research is so little is actually said or evident about his wife's part in his in his life but I, I think she was a real positive influencer over him and, and it, as the years go by this, this becomes more evident. But also he convinces his brother to move out um, and gets a job at a, at a gold mine, again through his father-in-law and his brother's killed not long after arriving in a, a, a landslide so he has to make funeral arrangements for his brother. So it's you're right, it's a real roller coaster ride. One of the greatest tragedies in his life is is his his eldest son, also named after him, Thomas Edward Bulch, who became um, a military bandsman and a, a sergeant in the Australian Armed Forces, went out to France in the First World War. He'd survived Gallipoli and was killed by a shrapnel wound in, in France. And I think that really set the Bulch family back in Australia. I think they were, that, that affected them quite profoundly.
0: What's one of the most sort of interesting or sort of unexpected discoveries that you've made along the way? Well, I think there were a couple of things, and one
1: one I've already talked about, really, which was that connection between Tom Bulch and Waltzing Matilda. I yeah. mean, you know, it, it and the Carl Volty connection as well. In Australia, uh, in a lot of the history books and, and accounts, he's actually mistaken as being Carl Volty, but they're two entirely separate people, which I think is surprising a, a few Australian band historians. But I, I think the other thing is perhaps just how the The others um, fared as well. I mean, Sam Lewins and and James Scarfe both became bandmasters of considerable renown without getting into composing or publishing. And also I think the pseudonyms, the idea that you're publishing so much music that people are getting a little bit sick of seeing your name and thinking, oh, you know, not another Tom Bulch march. So you start to adopt pseudonyms and just the way that these new characters are conjured up. It's almost like alternate personas. So he seems to publish very particular styles of of work under the different names, which is which is quite nice. And as you explore the music, it's quite surprising to see these different sides of him. Henry Lasky and Godfrey Parker. Yeah, the, the, it's it's almost like um, a kind of schizophrenia, if it's if it's not too sort of crude to to say. You know, it, it's like he's he's got. He's so productive. He's got multiple people inside him churning out music.
0: It's just fascinating and it's so good that you've made those links between the pseudonyms and all these different facets of his work. Where can people find out more about your work and your book?
1: Yeah, well, the book, um, it's called The Wizard and the Typhoon. The the reason for that, the whole project from the very beginning uh, very quickly came was in the typhoon, rather than, say, the George Allen and Thomas Bulch Appreciation Society, which <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> just felt a bit dry. So the typhoon was Tom Bulch's first published um, march the composed, when, reportedly when he was about 17 or 18, uh, back in about 1880. And it just, the name just seems to sum him up. He was just like a big, strong wind blowing his way around the world and you know scooping up all kinds of things and discarding things he was just a a real typhoon of a personality and the wizard of course anybody who knows George Allen Allen will recognize as being you know one of George's most famous marches and I think it just summons up that sense of wizardry in his music you know the the kind of scintillating dynamics of of his contest marches he he was a a wizard of music I mean you know I, I think the the title of The March King, I think there, there's, there's a lot of dispute over who deserves that, but he's certainly a, a real contender. So he was a wizard of music. So the books, The Wizard and the Typhoon, if you look that up in on Amazon, it's available on Amazon. But also there is a website which is www.wizardandtyphoon, it's all one word,.org. And that's got a few other things as well. So if, we've put some audio recordings there, there's some video material, there's a link to the book. Um, there's a distilled story of them all it's just really meant to become a a repository there's a blog of little things that I've learned along the way and things that continue to learn so you know there's always something new to go back to there if anybody wants to take a look at it
0: yeah it's absolutely a work in progress and the blog's really interesting just to see the little updates you go as you go along so Thank you so much, Dave, for giving us sort of an insight into these two men. And I will put links to everything we've talked about today in the show notes. But thanks again, Dave. Thanks, Helen. If you like the podcast, please help to grow by liking, sharing, rating and reviewing. You can also support the podcast by leaving a tip or buying a perk, including asking my next guest a question or getting a shout out via pod inbox. Links in the show notes. Podcast music is Mephistopheles, performed by the Illinois Brass Band.